Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, a quick bit of admin to get into before we get on looking at abandonment and being in life rafts long term, a part of our ongoing narration of the RYA Sea Survival Handbook by Keith Cole. Um, just quickly, if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, then one of two things will happen. Either I've just popped up uh, back in your feed, having been absent for about three months, in which case you've got like 10 or 12 episodes to get into. So enjoy that. Um, if you have been listening through the last two or three months, uh, through the beginning of 2024, then on Monday, um, it might be necessary for you to go into Apple Podcasts, look for the Mariner again and re-follow. There was an, an error in the way that the podcast was uh, logged with uh, Apple. Um, it created an issue where basically the, the podcast got archived and then a new version of it created. But the way that podcasts work and the way that they're distributed, you know, the amount of time that you've been doing it, the statistics that you've got or the analytics rather you've got for your podcast, all that stuff is very important. So, you know, um, you can create momentum over time, but if that momentum stops, you have to start again like nothing had ever happened. So that's where I've been at. That's what I've been doing. If you've been listening consistently in the last three months, um, you're going to have a different experience, which is that come Monday, you may not get a, a download. You may not get um, the new episode. It might even be before that. But um, if you don't see me in the next couple of days, have a quick look um, at Apple Podcasts and just um if you've got it, unfollow me and then refollow, unfollow and then go and search for me and refollow and you should be uh, should be back online with everything else. But um, we're looking very good now. It means that the podcast is back going out to thousands of people instead of the, uh, the hundreds that were there before. So hopefully more people can benefit from this. We've been talking about all sorts of things relating to um, getting into a life raft, which has been pretty interesting. So go back and have a look at those. Plus we had um, some ABCs of sailing. I can tell you coming up, there's going to be a, uh, a podcast, which is all about Joshua Slocum. I've been um, doing a lot of research recently, reading some really interesting books about him from uh, the 1950s. There seems to have been a big increase in interest in Joshua Slocum and his story in between about 1955 and 65. A lot of the books about him were public, published then. <clears throat> and um, I'm I'm keen to tell you the story which I have discovered, I guess is my point. I'm kind of having a difficulty recording it because I'm not quite sure how to formulate it. But this very two-dimensional, just like a kind of black and white picture of some dude from way back then has really started to morph in my mind into a deep understanding or deeper understanding of um, a figure which... Uh, he was he was pretty troubled in many ways. A lot of things had happened to him in his life, with his personal life, his family, all this kind of stuff. It's a story I really want to share with you because I think it gives a lot more depth to him and a lot more understanding of what he did and put that into the perspective of what was going on in the world in 1895. And you find a very unique individual who was doing something equally unique, sailing solo around the world for the first time. And um, to find out his more about his backstory just uh, makes the story richer and richer. So that's coming up very, very soon. Uh, we've also got another edition of the ABC of Sailing. We've also, of course, got the questions and tangents, which um, somebody sent me a question, which is about how do you heave to in a race boat with a very much modified keel? What's your method of dealing with very, very high winds? There was another question as well. I forget what it was now, but they're, they're coming up soon in the questions and tangents and we'll be doing news and views, um, I think very necessarily because the world seems to be going topsy-turvy at the moment. And uh, I hear some pretty stupid things being said. My job when I'm at sea is to look at the horizon and see storms that are coming and make assessments of whether it's going to be a big problem or a little problem. Um, that doesn't mean that I know anything about politics or anything else. 
But I would say this, you can look back at that uh, podcast I did about the Ukraine. And I was 100% dead on, right? So let's have a see if I've got anything worthwhile to say. I've got a lot to say about the, the COVID and the vaccine and all the rest of it. Um, I had my own situation through there, which I'll explain to you. But uh, that'll be in the news and views. And if you want to write in uh, with anything that's in the news at the moment that's uh, of interest to you, that you want me to talk about, it's csmthemariner at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner five dollars a month there helps support the podcast uh, but greater things that can be done to help out uh, even simpler over to youtube and we've got the videos there about the sail training in the winches recently have a look at that if you haven't already and of course i should add add that um if you haven't it would be absolutely phenomenal if you could put a review or a rating for this podcast for the mariner on your podcast app because they also add up big time and I think we want to do good things with the podcast in 2024. What I see it as being is the backbone of me going and doing sailing, the stuff that you guys want to see, that you want to hear about. Um, we've got the materials in the boats and the, the equipment we've got and the skills, all the rest of it. It's just if we're not racing those boats in big events offshore anymore, what are we doing with them? Well, what we can do is all sorts of things. We just have to dream them up. So let's do that together. CSMTheMariner at gmail.com. Give me some ideas of what uh, we could get up to this year with the podcast and um, we'll take it from there. But yeah, welcome back. If you haven't heard from me for a long time, I guess uh, here we go. Let's start uh, talking about the worst possible case scenario, bar one, that you can get into on a boat. You know, if you go into a life raft and you are um, not ready for what's going to happen, we've talked already about the psychology of survival. You could be out of the story within 24 hours. If you're going to be able to make it through a little bit more, you start to have to think about some very, very difficult realities. The fact that um, for human survival, going into the first line of what, what a segue, human, human uh, body needs more water than food. Tests have shown that a person will live for only seven to ten days without water, assuming there is no excessive fluid loss, but can survive for 20 to 30 days without food. When you get into a life raft and you start having to think about where you'll be at in 10 days, in 20 days, in 30 days, and start having to manage in the first couple of hours for that possibility, um, you, you're in a tricky situation. Now, you may think that, well, we've got the EPIRB and we've got our PLBs and we've got our AIS and we've got all this stuff. Absolutely. Probably you're absolutely right. I think you live in the best possible time ever to be in a situation where you're in a life raft. Um, the reality is <laughs> it may work and it very much depends on where you are in the world. There are lots and lots of places in the world where you can be sending out all kinds of signals and nobody coming for you. So let's have a look at what it is that we would have to do to try and survive for, let's say, a month. right? But we, we recognize in this that the longest recorded periods for people being in life rafts you know, 117 days, the oft mentioned by me, Morris and Marilyn Bailey, um, 117 days adrift. There's also, uh, what's his name? Poon Kin, Lo Poo Kin, I think was his name. He was a Singaporean, no, Malaysian um, fisherman. He was supposedly 180 days at sea, which is uh, pretty wild if that's true. Um, but very little remains of uh, what his exact story was. But definitely 117 days is... Uh, you know, you're four months in at that point. You've gone from anything that you had before is uh, out of your system and only the things that you were able to bring to the raft and process on the raft and consume on the raft are the things that are keeping you alive. So 
let's get into it. Uh, we'll start off, as always, have a see what um, Keith Colwell's got to say in the text, and then we'll add to it as we go along. In busy waterways such as those found in northern Europe, it is unlikely a raft will be adrift for more than 48 hours before being rescued. Absolutely. The greatest dangers are drowning and hypothermia, absolutely, rather than dehydration or starvation. Totally right. If you're sailing around, you know, Annapolis, uh, Long Island, um, San Francisco, like you're not looking at the life raft thinking I'm going to have to go in there. But you might have to be very, very cautious about hypothermia, which can happen on the deck of the boat with people on the rail overnight. And of course, somebody getting separated from the boat and going into the water. So we're talking about a very specific area of the experience of sailing and one in the end, which we don't ever want to have. But as we said previously, when you get into the most difficult seamanship challenge of your entire existence on the water, it's going to be in a craft with equipment that you hardly know have never operated like this and you're going to be doing it based on basically what you remember me saying or what you've read right there's no other place it's coming to you from so i without uh, apology um, drag out all of this description of abandonment and get into a life raft into what is five five episodes dealing just with chapter seven of this book but jesus if not through me then then where right so um Okay, going on. Since the human body has a reserve of water and energy within its tissues, no food or water should be taken in for the first 24 hours, except by children or conscious injured casualties who will experience greater fluid loss, right? Children are very small. You can't be like saying, well, I'm not going to eat for 24 hours. That's not going to happen. That's not a good way to operate that system. They have to be fed. What you're trying to do with everybody else is, <clears throat> firstly, you get like this first free day where you don't have to give anybody anything. And when you're dealing with small amounts of food, small amounts of water, and you're trying to stretch them out as far as possible, um, one day might represent like a 5% increase in the amount of food you've got available. So brilliant. The other thing you're trying to do is that if you don't feed yourself for a day, you get into basically an intermittent fasting, which you know each diet book, each whatever is around keto and intermittent fasting and we know a lot now about how the body's um, physiology changes in the uh, absence of food. And there are a lot of positive things that happen that could be beneficial to people in a life raft if you don't eat for the first 24 hours. Not least that at the most benign way of describing this without getting to the medic medical situation, your body goes into kind of like survival mode. And that's obviously going to have a lot of features built in, which are going to be useful to you as someone who's in a life raft. So um, getting the boat, the, the boat, getting the, uh, the boat's gone, Chris, don't worry about the boat, getting the body flicked over into that other mode, into that survival mode can happen pretty quickly. As we said before, taking on board those um, anti-seasickness tablets is absolutely important because now what you bring onto the raft with you is absolutely super important, including the contents of your stomach and your digestive tract, because you don't want to get into a situation where you prematurely eject any water that might be in you, any nutrients that might be in you, because that's super important. You need that stuff, right? Again, one extra day could be the difference between life and death. So seasickness tablets and then not eating. Okay, sounds good. Apart from, um, oh, the other thing I did mention in the last podcast was that you can stuff your face silly before you leave the boat if the stuff you're taking cannot be got onto the life raft. If there's like, I don't know, <laughs> the remains of a chicken roast in the in the fridge and the water's at your knees and you're about to get in the life raft, eat the damn chicken, right? Eat whatever you can because maybe you can go two days without um without eating. I don't know, but consume whatever you can and uh, be ready for the fact that you're going to have to flick your body into that other mode, that survival mode. And um, that's best done by not eating for 24 hours. Okay. <clears throat> it says if only minimal water supplies are available, the ration for water after 24 hours is half a litre per person per day. Um, 
that means just uh, under about one pint per person per day. Take a third of a ration at sunrise, a third at midday and a third at sunset. When drinking water, keep it in your mouth for as long as possible to moisten the, moisten the membranes. To maintain morale and good harmony, it is vital to ensure that food and water rations are issued fairly. Okay, let me just go over the page here because I often end up chatting about things and then discover that they talk about the, you know, the next page over. It says on the next page, water may be supplied in the life raft pack. It will be in sealed sachets. Use the scissors to... Use the scissors in the first aid kit and open the sachet carefully. Decant any leftover water into a clean bottle or sealable container. Stow an empty bottle in your grab bag to collect leftover water. You know, it doesn't have to be, don't stow an empty bottle. <laughs> stow a full one, good Lord. Um, if you have plenty of water, each person may drink up to one liter per day. And that's about 1.75 pints per day. Whether you have plenty or virtually none, start to collect water from the outset. You don't know when it might rain again. Um, well, we keep going here with water. I guess then we'll talk about it. Drink collected rainwater first because bottled water and sealed sachet water will stay fresh for longer than rainwater. I disagree with that. We'll come back to it. Do not drink urine. Do not drink seawater, even in a diluted state. Death has been found to occur quicker when you drink seawater rather than nothing at all. Not true. Reduce the body's water loss by making the best use of the shade and cooling from the breeze. And then avoid eating protein-based food such as fish or meat because digesting them requires more fluid than they provide. Carbohydrates and sugars are better. Okay. Okay, let's have a see here. So we have to go back a page and just review that. So um, <clears throat> a little bit of water in the morning, a little bit of water in the midday, and a little bit of water in the afternoon. Yes, it sound, that sounds good. I'm not sure what research that's based on. I'd be very interested to know. Um, it's absolutely true that if you're out in the sun, you can end up losing a lot of water. Now, I'll have to do this in um, in metric units because I don't know it in... Uh, uh, well, maybe I could do it. Okay, so 250 mil, uh, 250 milliliters is what you can sweat out through your skin if you have uncovered skin and you're in the heat of the sun and you're in a situation where you can sweat. If you've got very, very high humidity in the tropics, it's actually very difficult to sweat. So that you will be it'll be pouring out of you and running off you essentially instead of uh, instead of evaporating to the air but um, about 250 mil that can be reduced hugely by covering up your skin by getting into any shade that's possible and um, what is 250 mil is if half a liter of per day is a pint we're talking about half a pint so you can lose half a pint an hour through your skin if you're completely um, exposed to the sun and that's why, of course, you must, if you're traveling in the desert, if you're traveling in over the ocean, places where you can't get out of the sun, where the sun's very, very strong, remember at sea, it reflects off the sea as well, then you need to be covered up and shaded in the day. Are you going to feel as much thirst at night? Probably not. And during the nighttime, a lot of um, uh, dew accumulates on things at sea, and that's fresh water. So I would be a little bit in the day and a little bit at night and all the rest of the stuff, I'd be saying that the worst possible time for you is going to be during the day. I'd be saying slowly and steadily consume your water bit by bit by bit by the hour during the, 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 the heat of the day, which can be about 10 hours. So if you've got a litre, then you're doing about 100 milliliters, which is, geez, I can't even do the, it's like a fifth of a pint. Has that got a name? <laughs> a quart? I don't know. A, a penta something. I get very confused with Imperial, but about you know, <clears throat> half a cup, I guess that would be what that is, about half a cup um, every hour, if you've got a litre available per day, a couple of pints per day, that's probably going to satisfy your need to drink. And we have to be very careful about our need to drink because it's a very, very basic instinct. And if we start to 
fiddle around with it too much, we can get into some very dark psychological places um, where people get very desperate very quickly. Now, I'm looking here at the lovely uh, diagrams that are on this book and it has like a calendar with 30 days on it. And it's saying that, you know, only 10 of those with little blue crosses, 10 of them is how far you'll get with water. And then another little chart with red crosses across the days and that's how far you'll get with food 30 days covered so they're trying to make the point like you haven't got long if you've got water if you're rationed on water it's a bit like drinking through a drinking it's a bit like breathing through like a garden hose you know you can do it but the reality is you start to get pretty uh, internally stressed very very quickly and you can imagine tempers getting quite frayed so allowing people to drink a little bit might be better. I can imagine getting from like sun up to midday and be like not too bad and then have a little, you know, quaff of water at midday and then but getting from getting from midday when the sun's at its highest to something like five in the afternoon in the I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do that. I think what's gonna happen, I'm gonna start going a little crazy and drinking a load of stuff, which is what happens. If you look at the ex the experience of people like Yves Parlier, who was the famous um Vendee Globe sailor who dismastered his boat just off of New Zealand and then in an incredible piece of work, he got the rig out of the water, like a 400 kilo rig. He got it out of the, what's that, uh, 800, 900 pound rig, got it out of the water, got it repaired because his background is working with carbon and, and epoxy, um, got it stood back up. <laughs> so he stands his mast back up. The mast was 90 foot before. It was 70 foot by the end of it. He stood a 70 foot mast up on his own, on his boat. And then recut all the rigging, had already recut the rigging so that it fitted because it was um, a composite rigging. And then recut the, the mainsail and jib so that they would fit in there easily. So the main's not just sitting in a couple of reefs for thousands of miles. Got it all worked out and set off down to Cape Horn and round Cape Horn. And then was literally trolling for food with, uh, with netting, trying to catch anything from the ocean that could uh, satisfy him. And he was doing really, really well with that until he kind of lost the plot one day and just ate basically all the last all the food he had left and was like I'm not going to go any further um, until his wife um, talked to him and said you you kind of going to have to get yourself back here right this is kind of a big deal this is not one you can just uh, <laughs> cheap out on but he was at just that point in his psychology so he did he managed to sail on to to France he was uh, I think literally trolling for krill in the end with something equivalent to uh, some stockings and uh, got himself back to France having lost a lot of weight and all the rest of it but so many people, like a million people, went down to Sabdalon to see him sail in. It was an incredibly important thing that people saw done, that he was able to survive in that situation. I think it gave a lot of strength to a lot of folks. But that moment where he just ate all the food, did he like, you know, like wake up confused and accidentally eat all the food? No, just a very, very basic uh, primeval instinct started to work upon his, his, his rationality and his uh, common sense. And he just ate everything. And that's what can happen with the water or fights break out, which is the other thing, right? That's literally the uh, the storyline in every uh, movie, black and white movie, where they end up in the lifeboat that they're arguing over the water. So I'd say even it out a little bit. Don't make people wait long periods uh, and definitely front load for people like, look, this is how much water we've got. This is what we've got to do. We don't want to be surprising folks with that one. Um, keeping full water bottles in the uh, grab bag. Um, the plastic bottles that you buy at the uh, store that, you know, they're fantastic because they can then be used for collecting stuff. All you might have to do at the very, very most is make sure you don't fill it up much past two thirds so that if it does go over the side, it's easy to see in the water. It's floating. You can get it back because that little bit of water in that one litre bottle that you've got there is going to be very important. If it gets knocked somehow over the side of the raft, you're going to want to be able to get it back if it's at all possible. You don't want it sinking. So 
hard to get fresh water to sink i know in the ocean but uh it can end up that it's almost so neutrally buoyant that you can't see it below the surface and it gets lost so uh, keep some um, just normal water bottles in your um, grab bag as we've spoken about previously what i used to do is i had uh the, the whitbread 60 challenger she didn't have very big water tanks so we had these jugs that go on water cooler towers they're 18 liters each and um, one of those obviously would keep people going for a long time it's going to keep six people going for three days at one liter each it's going to keep them going for nearly a week um, you know if you cut the rations right down so you can get a long way with that and those bottles you can get them off the boat in the event that things go wrong put a constrictor hitch around the neck on a piece a couple of bits of line you've got yourself like kind of a sea anchor and kind of a amazing water supply so have things on the boat that you can fill up if you need to go over the side water is very very important now what were those things on the other side uh, when you have uh, yeah when you have plenty or virtually none start to collect water from the outset you don't know when it might rain again there's something else here. I was in a situation on Open 60 racing up the coast of uh, Brazil where the water maker stopped working and just to like spool way ahead of it. Uh, I was on the phone with the technical director of the people that make the water maker having him take me through it after already rebuilding it multiple times after a couple of days. And I already knew how it worked. I had all the service parts. And what we boiled it down to is that basically I had sucked up some kind of chemical probably from some kind of ship or some kind of uh, oil platform or whatever it was, but I'd gone through something, something discharged and it had blocked the water maker, the actual um, membrane. So I was suddenly thrown into a situation where on a race boat, we're not keeping like hundreds or thousands of liters of water on board. I had at that point like 25 liters or something. And uh, no, you know what? I had a 25 liter jug. It was not full. It was about, about 10 liters in it. So the point being here that I'm racing in an open 60, which is very hard boat to sail through the equatorial region around Brazil and the options were stop racing and go in and get water and get this thing fixed or keep going now at the place where I was at in the race it was a race of legs around the world so I wanted to do as well as I could in that leg and I could get some kind of victory out of it I think I got third in that uh, leg by not going in but what I learned during that period of time where the water maker was apart is that the other element to consider is the fact that your ability to make rational decisions starts to decrease massively when you don't have water right so if you're going to start making some kind of a plan of collecting water that is going to require a little bit of brain power and you're going to need to be on muscle memory by the time your brain degrades to the point where it's only got instincts available to it right so the different methods of collecting rainwater which we're going to get into here solar stills and all this kind of stuff those things require you to be very cautious and careful and considerate about what you're doing because if you go blundering into it like with a solar still you can knock it and then lose all the condensate and it mixes back with the salt water and it's all gone so you need to be on your game so get into collecting water at the beginning because god help you if you start to run out of water later on where you didn't collect water at the beginning but equally um, recognize that you know your mental capacity is going to drop and your ability to problem solve how to do a good job of getting water is going to decrease now there is one problem with that and there's one problem with their statement which is the fact that when the life rafts are packed the rubberized pvc that they're made from is like all chemicals right and that life raft is going to taste awful so if your method of collecting water is to collect it on the canopy of a life raft as per the diagram that's coming up very soon here um, that water is going to be pretty bad equally when the life raft gets to the end of its life now you've been out there two months or something and that thing's been out in the sun all of that rubberized material is going to be starting to come apart come off the um 
the, the, the underlying fabric that it's attached to, that it's vulcanized to, and that's going to be getting into your water as well. If your water collection method is based on collecting water that's collected on the, the canopy of the, of the life raft, which a lot of them are, um, <clears throat> either of those two can lead to water which is not potable. Uh, or potable, I think is how some people pronounce it, but it's you can't drink it, right? <laughs> so uh, drinking it may cause you to retch because of the chemicals in it. So here we go. We have to talk about enemas and enema pipes and stuff here. What you can do is put a tube up your bum. You lie on your right-hand side, which means that the descending colon in your the large uh, large part of your colon, your duodenum, is then the, the bit that goes from up underneath your rib cage and goes down towards your butt. That's on the left side of your body. So if you lie on your... Sorry, your, I said your right side. If you lie on your left side, then you will be able to put water into your bottom via a tube and it will collect in that area and the duodenum's job is to remove water from your stool so that it's dried and comes out the end in a regular <clears throat> regular kind of like packaging as opposed to the way it is after a curry, right? So that lower section is where the body will do this magical job of bringing water into itself and it doesn't care about the taste, right? So you can put water in there and it will collect in that descending part of the duodenum and you'll be able to um, bring on board uh, fluids in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. If you can't choke it down because it tastes all chemical, what, what are you meant to do with it? Well, have a little tube curled up in your in your bag right because there's no tubes in the life raft so make sure that's in your first aid kit or something like that and uh, get ready for having to do things slightly differently but it's amazing how i will say this there's there's five stages to um dehydration right there's um let me get this right there's swollen tongue shriveled tongue uh hang on no no there's cotton mouth swollen tongue shriveled tongue blood sweats living death <laughs> okay can you believe it that is the um that's the uh, the official line. I remember reading a book years ago and it was all about survival at the extreme elements. There's people who have been literally dehydrated, no water at all, out in Death Valley. And they have found their way after many days in this extreme environment without water. They found their way into a campsite. I think the first guy, they said when he entered the campsite crawling, they weren't sure if he was some kind of animal like a tailless crocodile because of the way that his uh, skin looked. What those people did at that time, they were pretty intelligent about it, is they introduced water very, very slowly to this person by dabbing it on the inside of their elbows, their crotch, the back of their knees, all those very thin membranes. And that's kind of what the it's talking about in this text we've just been through there, that you hold the water in your mouth. If you want to get drunk faster, you know, put the put the stuff in your mouth and then swill it around, swill it around. The alcohol is going to get absorbed into your bloodstream through your mouth. If you have somebody who is hypoglycemic, needs to get sugar in quickly, what you do? on the lips, inside the mouth, a little bit of honey, a little bit of um, you know warm chocolate, something like that. Get those sugars into them through the lining of the mouth. What they were doing with that chap, that poor, I forget his name now, who had come in in this terribly dehydrated position is slowly reinducing water into his body because as you get to the very extremes of dehydration, the kind of dehydration that we're talking about here with a little... Um, a chart that shows 10 days and you're dead you know by day eight day nine well day seven you're starting to get to a point where your body is shutting down and your digestive tract is not going to work at all and it's not going to take water out of food for you anymore your body's going <clears> to <throat> going to sacrifice that to keep you alive and when what you need to be what the things that need to be looked after is that you can survive is your brain your heart um you know your blood vessels the things and your lungs of course the things that get things around your digestive tract that becomes second rate very quickly to your body and it's not going to work so they put wet 
um, um, cloths and things onto the delicate parts of this chap's skin and he was able to slowly rehydrate enough until he was at a point where he could take on a little bit of water, a little bit of water and then come back from it and that guy went on to write a book in which he describes the five stages of dehydration. Cotton mouth, I've been there. Swollen tongue, have you been there? That's not good. When you get thirsty normally, that's when your body is crying out that it's probably about 10% dehydrated. When you get your pee is really like dark and nasty, then you're getting down like 15% dehydrated in terms of the water you should have on board your body. If you're part of a race crew and you're trying to drop your body weight, um, you're doing all that like with plastic bags on and going in the sauna and running around and all that stuff, which I've definitely done. Um, you are trying to drop um, mass. You're trying to get water out of your body so you can drop the mass of the crew and get into whatever regatta you're trying to do, right? You can lose mass really quickly through water dehydration the amount of water that you can get out of your body and still be healthy you could be 10 or 15 percent into that um, on a on a relatively sort of normal daily basis at sea you're going to be like approaching 50 percent of how much water you can lose you'll be approaching 70 80 percent of how much water you can lose until when you get to 100 percent you're then in the bit where only the psychology of survival will keep you alive and somebody may be helping you out so these things are um, they, they've been experienced by humans there's lots to be learned from it we don't want to get into any of that but the point being your um, ability to rationalize will be lowered very very quickly um, and your uh, <clears throat> ability to, to to drink water that comes uh, later on through the life raft uh, roof may be limited so within the bounds of what it tastes like chemically to attract it to to collect water early on get the water into the bottles, the things that you brought with you or into your body. Um, later on, it's going to get harder. If at any point you can't drink it at all, have a tube ready to take it uh, via the other method. Um, the uh, last bit here about protein-based food, the, the Baileys, when they were in their life raft, made themselves very, very ill by eating um, turtles, which are very, very high protein. But as it clearly says here, um, digesting protein requires more fluid than it provides. So you get nutrients out of it, which is super important, but you can't um, you can't process it properly. And that would include fish, although there's a lot of moisture in fish. And if you've listened over on the Mariner's Library, we did um, the Bombard story, the, uh, the story of Dr. Alain Bombard, who went across the Atlantic on a six-foot Avon raft without food, without water. That leads me to question this uh, statement up here. <clears throat> Don't drink urine. Okay, urine is funny stuff, right? People who have been involved in um, deep uh, uh, meditative practices for thousands of years drink urine. They drink urine because it contains chemicals which cause like a numbness. And that numbness can be useful when they're sitting on super hard surfaces, right? So they're taking it in, not because it's the, their method of like rehydrating themselves, but because there's a chemical in there. I don't know what it is, sorry. That would create numbness and it helps them in their meditative practice to get rid of the uncomfortableness that would interfere with what they're trying to do they always said never drink the first or the last which is good advice because the first part of the urine coming out is clearing out your urethra the last part of it is the dregs out the bottom of your bowel neither of which you want to uh uh your bladder rather sorry <laughs> you definitely don't want to drink the dregs of your bowel but of your bladder rather so that's what they say you shouldn't necessarily go for urine because very very quickly it's going to become super super uh concentrated in um lactic acid and in um uh, urea in uric acid so that's going to become problematic for you if you were in an extreme circumstance where 
you knew it was going to be extreme and you were going into it and you just had a big drink beforehand, then maybe, like, never the first nor the last, like, you might. I don't know, maybe get through the first day in the life raft by drinking for the second time the things you had on the last day on the boat. I don't know, but it's going to get a bit complex and it's going to get a bit weird. The only time you'd ever do it is right at the very beginning and i don't think it's gonna be very good for the psychology of the life raft uh, <laughs> the people on board when the first decent uh, command from the leader on board whether it be the skip or not is <laughs> get a drink up this so look don't don't need to go there first don't for god's sake do that on the first couple of hours and then be rescued a couple of hours later because that's going to be tricky to explain but it's good to know the other things right so the rain coming off the the life raft at the very beginning is going to be taste chemical at the end it might be so bad you can't drink it have a tube available for that um be aware of the fact that collecting water is a bit of a complex business that you've never been involved in before and so don't do it too late on because a you'll miss out on opportunities to collect water and b you might not have the mental capacity to do it very well and uh, be cautious about eating too much protein which again you might have brought onto the boat with you maybe you brought the the big roast that you did from the night before or a big um pata negra um uh, ham or something the problem now is that you can't just eat protein all the time it's not going to work out carbs is what you need to be getting through and that's what's providing the life raft it's a note here to say is that if you've got a life raft on board the boat we went through at the very beginning of this all the different kind of life rafts there are but the the mca ones the marine coast guard authority stamped ones that uh uh, are rated for more than 24 hours they have enough water in there for like a couple of days but not like long periods of time the ones that are b-pack rated which have a less than 24 hours they got nothing so don't ever think that you're like cheating the system to save the money and not have your life raft packed with all the goodies because you're only cheating yourself if you ever actually need to use it um, nice little uh, sidebar story here actually you know what i've got so i've got an advert for you <clears throat> i've got an advert for you which i'm going to do it's for the um the Mariner's Library, but I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to play you a little clip here. I just want to set the scene first. The boat is in the middle of the, uh, where are they, Pacific? Uh, I don't know. They're in some ocean. It doesn't really matter for this. Giant waves, giant waves, okay? And they're in this little boat. And I think what's happening will become perfectly clear, but you should know that um, one of the crew is inside pumping the bilges for two reasons. Firstly, because the oily water in the bilges is creating a slick to leeward, which is stopping the, uh, sorry, to windward rather, which is stopping the, um, the, the waves from breaking over the boat. Um, but he's been in there quite a while and on deck, things are just getting worse and worse. Have a listen to this. When a big sea came over the port quarter, going completely over me at the wheel, taking my sou'wester with it and burying Fox, who clutched the mast with his arms and legs up to his shoulders. Jim had caught the mizzen rigging and shouting down to me through the racket, That was a hell of a big one, Skipper! He started forward again, clawing his way along the handrail. It was just at this moment that the big crash came. Possibly we broached too, I can't say, and it doesn't really matter. For the big, unstable brute that came down on us would have swamped us no matter what position we had been in. Clutching the wheel, I crouched in the lee corner of the cockpit. I remember going down under tons of solid water, with a last impression of Dillaway's face framed in the porthole as he pumped out the oily... <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> 
Holy f- I think you get the idea. Like, it's pretty good fun reading these sometimes. These are fantastic stories that um, come down to as like, oh, that one's only 100 years old, right? But you can still completely be there with those characters. And if they were sat around your table on your boat, you'd be enjoying the stories no matter what. That's uh, an unbelievable situation to imagine being on deck. The boat's rolling over, you're going underwater, and the last thing you see is your mate inside the boat still pumping. Uh, it goes on to explain how that looks from the guy inside the boat as well. But um, great stuff. If you're interested in those, the Mariner's Library, it equally got um, got pooched by this uh, media company who I had supposedly managing to my betterment the podcast when it was archived and a new version of it was put forward. Um, it's it's there now. Go and have a look. If on Monday you still can't see it, all that kind of stuff, just look for it again. It's just going to be a weird transition for a couple of days. And if you want to help out, um, rating and reviewing these podcasts, which you can do just right there on your podcast app, absolutely essential. But um, you know, if you haven't had any uh, break in your uh, uh, communication or my communication with you, whatever it is in the last couple of months, don't worry. It's going to be there anyway. It's just if you're over on Apple that there's a bit of a problem. But um, the Mariner's Library, it keeps me entertained. I'll tell you what, um, I hope it does the same for everybody else. Uh, the hundreds and hundreds of people listening to that, I hope they're all having giggles like I am, even if I have to edit mine out. Okay, uh, continuing here with Abandoning Ship. Uh, sustaining the will to survive. Oh, the bloody will to survive. That podcast did hardly anything, you know. Again, because of this admin issue, but also I think people look at it and go, you know, the will to survive, like really, is that that important? Well, let me tell you, it definitely is. And uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. So um, have a look at that one if you haven't already. It's called The Psychology of Survival. It's here on the Mariner. Um, but here, long-time survival techniques. Sustaining the will to survive and the belief that you will be rescued is essential. Keep the survivor's morale high by running a disciplined routine. When children are little, it's very, very important to keep a very like rigorous timetable with them because it adds a certain amount of um, stability and security and uh, they can uh, operate their emotions around the schedule that you've set. They can get nervous in the afternoon that, uh, you know, there's never going to see food ever again. And then five o'clock, oh, the food turns up and there it is. And then they can be starting to get a bit raggedy at 6.30, but at seven, they're going to bed and it will be reset and they're good by the morning. Like that sort of is kind of how it works, right? If you've had kids, you'll know how dreamy that sounds. But on board a raft at sea, you're going to be doing this with a lot of people who haven't been in a boat before. If you think of like Joshua Slocum and those people at the end of the 19th century, if you worked on ships, you've probably been in some kind of like disastrous washed ashore or into a lifeboat type situation previously, um, or just your, your life on board the boat would be that damn difficult that the privations of a, an open boat in the middle of the ocean would be just as serious physiologically as they might be to any other human. But psychologically, it probably wasn't, you know, there's a lot less work. That might be good. As long as a bit of water and a bit of food, um, everything else about it was well within their, their wheelhouse, so to speak. But for modern people who are not used to this, who are probably leisure sailors, essentially, to get thrown into a situation where you're in not even like the main boat, you're now in like the, the blow up on the back, um, that can lead to some very negative positions in the mind, which can have a very large outcome. You think how much science works to try and remove the placebo effect from testing. You have to have double blind testing where the person receiving the test drug doesn't know whether it's the real drug or the fake drug. But also the double blind part is that the person giving it to them doesn't know if it's the real drug or not the, the drug because just some kind of like thing they might be able to pass on through a slight gesture or a wink or a look or whatever else is enough for people to like 
grasp onto hope like you know this is the one this is you've got the medicine might be the thing that makes you better rather than the actual medicine itself and vice versa getting the idea that you're getting the non-medicine might push you there is an anti-placebo effect as well which I, I i sort of see go past on boats quite a lot you can have people are really seasick and you give them stuff which should stop them puking like buckerstem or something which is you know used in hospital to stop people vomiting and they will keep vomiting because they've decided i'm vomiting and they have like this uh, even though it should be being helped it won't work so being able to trip and step and skip around the edges of existence is something we don't have ex much experience of these days um it is something to learn about and and kind of be able to identify and have open conversation with and you're going to have a lot happier life raft and a lot greater chance therefore of, of being rescued before it all breaks down into anarchy fear panic despair and recriminations will undermine your belief that you will pull through so says the book knowledge of survival techniques and confidence in equipment will help you remain calm focused and positive you know if you got into a life raft and you had to do a, like a briefing for the crew like hey we're we're now in the life raft let me take you through the features the <laughs> the quirks and features of the life raft could you do it could you actually tell them how everything works and where everything is on your life raft? And well, that ain't going to look very good, is it then? So maybe it's worth, you know, looking into that a little bit, not to get snarky with you, but you know, here's a deal. Um, Long-term survival techniques revolve around collecting or making water to drink, fishing, keeping the raft inflated and in good order and keeping watch for potential rescuers. Absolutely. And as it said earlier on, do that in, in, in rotation. So people change out regularly. You know, if someone gets very, very um, specific at a job, that can be very, very good for them. But somebody else might get uh, pent up in a job that they're not particularly good at. And that starts to create uh, issues. So um, by rotating everybody around, just as you should do on your boat with all the different jobs, do that in the life raft as well. Um, it's boxed out here. Collect rainwater at every opportunity. I did a video on the Mariner YouTube channel um, only a little while ago about going through a rainstorm at sea uh, a couple of months ago now. I don't know, like number 15 or something like that. Um, but it's uh, me collecting water. And it's because of having that experience where I was, you know, getting swollen. Oh, you know what? I didn't talk about. I didn't finish the thought today about the five stages of dehydration. Let me just say I've been to um, swollen tongue. I've I've uh, and the, the way that I got out of that situation um, <clears throat> with all kind of parts intact, including mental and physical. Now, I told a doctor about this uh, a number of years ago, uh, Re Regina, who was uh, on with us going from uh, Newfoundland to the UK. And she was like, that absolutely did not work. So I, I take it on board that uh, doctors will say that this doesn't work. But um, the placebo effect of <laughs> lying in a couple of inches of water so that my groin, my elbows, my armpits, the side of my body, the delicate skin um, gave me a lot of relief. It cooled me down. It was in the shade uh, inside the boat, basically underneath the cockpit on the open 60. I was able to flood a couple of inches of water in there, lie in that. And then I was able to get the water maker working to a point where I had about 250 milliliters, about a, cu a cup of water per day. And I'd mix that with a cup of seawater which i'm not so worried about that here it said like you'll die if you have seawater that's not entirely true and if you listen to that alain bombard thing it's definitely not true the problem is if you get into a situation where you are chronically dehydrated and then out of desperation you start taking on seawater that's definitely a problem and i've got my receipts on this so if you don't agree no problem csm the manager at gmail of the manager <laughs> yeah right to the manager csm the mariner at gmail.com and uh, we'll, we'll have a chat about it Listen, we're all here to learn right but before you 
have an opinion, you can listen to Alain Bombard over on the Mariner's Library, or you can read it and find out what he had to say, because what he was trying to do was save a quarter of a million lives a year that were being lost in life rafts. He wasn't messing around. He did his research. If you get into salt water early on, uh, before you get dehydrated, it's absolutely possible with rainwater that you're collecting, of course, with fish that you're consuming that have a lot of uh, uh, fresh water in them. With those things, you can keep yourself above privation. And he did for, you know, <laughs> cross the Atlantic in six weeks with no food and water. Like we're not deciding, like, can you do this? We're, we know we can do it, but it's a technique that you use at the extreme of, uh, of uh, the human experience. So those five stages of dehydration, I can tell you that swollen tongue when you can't talk properly. Also, by that point, you can't think properly. So um, collect rainwater at, at every opportunity. Uh, better quality life rafts, it says, have a small rain catcher fitted to the canopy of the raft. It's important to prepare the canopy and the collection bottle before the rain arrives. Wash built up salt crystals off the canopy and rinse containers with fresh seawater. <clears throat> hey, wash. Oh, I see. So if the salt has built up on your life rafts and you've. Yes, I see. So they're getting you to wash everything through with seawater and then it'll take a very minimal amount of fresh water to complete the cleaning process. And then you're collecting in a, in a nice, uh, clean uh you know, container that's not got any salt in it. Use the first downpour to wash off the remaining salt. Absolutely. Anything you collect during the initial shower will be contaminated and undrinkable. Collect the rainwater once the salt has been washed off. Look, if you've got a water maker on your boat, you may have like a, a salt detecting system that tells you if it's potable and whether you should then transfer it to the main tanks. But everybody else just tastes it, okay? And you can take on quite a bit of salt. Like get a glass of water and start adding salt to it until you can't drink it it's going to be quite a lot of salt and i would say if you've ever had to drink salt water i did it when i had um i had candida in my mouth which is uh thrush essentially like a, a fungal infection in my mouth like it is not good i couldn't drink for five days but since i've had that a, a couple times at sea i've now learned that salt water um gargling and and taking salt water and having to swallow it because it's you know this stuff goes down your throat the candida um it can be very very helpful the first mouthful of salt water tastes unbelievably salty so the trick is you take the first mouthful swill it around make you know kind of get used to the fact it's extraordinarily salty spit that out and then the next one you might find it's not so bad i'm not in any way saying drink seawater like long term as an alternative to you know <laughs> normal water what i'm saying is that if you think you're going to die if you don't drink that water i drink it well like kind of whatever it is and deal with the repercussions because death comes quickly to those who have not made a plan so uh improvise other means of collecting rainwater yeah on that video on youtube i'm just collecting it in the kettle i just tie the kettle off very gently to the to the boom so i don't literally lose the kettle over the side i've got the kettle balanced on the bimini and uh just there's a there's a bit of water collecting in one of the reefs on the main and uh, it's dribbling into the into the uh the kettle it's fantastic and i think in that video i say it's a good idea to know where those drips come from, to know which bags of your mainsail get uh, full of water and draw a little cross on them and then get a, 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 an eyelet put into that place. It's not going to like reduce the <laughs> efficiency of the mainsail or something. And it might look a bit weird because it might not be exactly where you're expecting it to be. But over time, if you just put a little dot on the mainsail, you find that it's pretty much the same place every time ends up bagging and, and filling up with water. So if there's an eyelet in there, you can push a piece of hose up into that 
and then have that hose going down into uh, some kind of bottle and everything else once you've washed the salt off the mainsail of course the uh, point being here that improvising things get better at improvising things on the boat if they're saying that the long-term survival techniques revolve around collecting or making drinking water fishing and keeping the raft inflated then i would say <laughs> what you need to do is uh, like me learn how to you know talk too much you've got hot air available to keep the life raft available go fishing a lot and learn how to collect and make water like, do you know how to make fire? Do you know how to make water from leaves that are transpiring, from condensate in the mornings? Like, if you don't know these techniques, it's a poor time to be trying to learn them at sea and a, in, a, in a life raft situation. Um, unpalatable rainwater can be ingested by enema. Hurrah! Yes, Lynn Robertson, a qualified nurse, used the raft's bellows. The raft's bellows? That's a... <laughs> that's a she went straight to the uh, to the big boys there. okay she got the raft's bellows which they do give you manual bellows inside to pump the raft back up um as a method for introducing poor quality rainwater for absorption during the gut on her family wow when they were shipwrecked okay right she wasn't just <laughs> out of interest when they were shipwrecked for 37 days in june of 1972 good lord however tests have shown that saltwater enemas are not a solution to dehydration the gut does not filter salt out of the water only use rainwater well what i was saying is um use unpalatable uh, well it's unpotable because you can't drink it right but it's it physically you can take on board what's going on but it's got all the kind of chemicals from the life rafts um canopy or later on when the rubberized section starts breaking down and that's when you use it maybe i read their their book but um the the point being salt water enemas are not a solution to dehydration well Again, I don't know that, right? I don't know. What I know is that I lay in salt water for uh, days on end. Like that took another two weeks to get to the shore. That wasn't five minutes. I was drinking all that bloody salty, crappy water. I used to put sugar in with it as well to make it taste like a really awful isotonic drink. Um, but the uh, I, I felt it was beneficial. Maybe there's a, you know... <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what the benefit could be? But uh, I'd be very interested to revisit that uh, that uh, research on salt water and the stuff that Alan Bombard did and find out what the details. I'm, I've not particularly got a dog in the, the game here. I don't mind if it is working or not working. It worked for me. Is it if it's a placebo effect? Sorry, if it's a placebo effect, then you know, that's worth knowing as well, because that's also a survival technique, right? Um, it's got a little boxed out thing here. It says the 30th of July, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was attacked by a Japanese submarine. The ship sank in 12 minutes and many survivors ended up in the water. Rescuers took several days to reach them. Desperately thirsty, some survivors drank seawater. They became delirious and started to hallucinate. Uh, some thought that there was an island nearby and would try to swim off to it. Some claimed that the ship was not sunk uh, but was just below the surface and convinced others to remove their life jackets and swim down with them to drink from a water fountain. Oh, bless. Of a crew of 1,196, it's estimated 900 went into the water. Four days later, only 316 men remained alive. While some were lost to sharks, many were lost due to the effects of drinking seawater. Well, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult to know how many were lost from what? I think you go into the water. These were not, it keeps saying men here, 316 men. These were boys. These were children. These were people that if they walked into, you know, your life, you'd say that is a child. I know from the statistics on this podcast that pretty much everyone who listens to it seems to be <laughs> a white man over 50 living in uh, the Western world somewhere. If you're not, hey, I'd love to hear from you because I see some amazing places downloading this uh this podcast and but if you look at the median 
you are not anything like the people that went into the water. They were people who, when you think of yourself at that age, you think I was a child. Now, those children did not necessarily have the clearly, obviously, OK, they were 18, 18, 20, but they probably couldn't drink. Right. So they didn't have the spiritual reserves. I don't mean God. I mean, the ability and desire to will to survive. They didn't have that. And that's why Outward Bound was created in the UK, as we know, during the Second World War, specifically to target this issue that young men going into the water didn't have the tenacity to see it through. So it is uh, erroneous because there is no causal link between these things that we can discern from this. 900 went into the water and only 316. Some were lost to sharks, but many were lost due to the effects of drinking. And I, I don't I don't take that on. What I would say, though, is that um, it says the uh, here we go. Desperately thirsty, some survivors drank seawater, and that is the big no-no. If you were sipping it, like in ten mil, like half a shot's worth, a little bit every hour, you could stay on top of your dehydration easily for four days before you get picked up. That is, without a doubt, true. The problem is if you get really, really, really thirsty and then you start to drink the seawater. I have been in the situation that they got into. I told the story um, a couple of podcasts back, actually, about me in Australia and the boat sank and we were swimming for all those hours. And I thought that I could go underwater and live underwater with the fishes. That's exactly what they're talking about. And it's only by a very, very strong force of will that you don't give way to that and obviously <clears throat> end up in some terrible situation. But um there's some kind of mid ground in this. And, you know, he's having to give an example from 1945. There's uh, I'd be very interested to, to find out um, what the state of research is relating to that, bearing in mind that we know for a fact that uh, Lamb Bombard was weeks and weeks uh, without uh, fresh water, drinking only uh, seawater. And uh, no, that's not true. He didn't take any water with him. What he did is he collected water, certainly for the four days they're talking about. They should have been able to do that by just topping up with what was around them. But um, hey, I'm here to learn as well. So if anybody's got more information, let's find out. Let's shape this, you know, so that we can learn from this and we can we can maybe put something out from this podcast as well as take things in where it's uh, we learn things by using this community to develop uh, new new and interesting ideas. But um, don't wait if you really have nothing, 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 nothing. It's just you on the briny deeps a tiny little sip of water every hour and it may get you through. Um, the next piece of equipment that's in the, the life raft, it's the solar still. Now, I don't know if you know about this, but <laughs> it's in the life raft equipment. It's kind of important. Um, an inflatable solar still can be filled and fastened alongside the raft. Hmm. Salt water held in the bottom of the still evaporates and potable water condenses on the inside of the tent and runs down to a collective bottle. So what you can imagine here is, imagine like a little floating rubber ring and it's black on top and then attached to the upper surface of the rubber ring is a clear uh, plastic cone essentially that goes up and is kind of pinned up above this thing and then in the middle of the rubber ring is a little pool of um, salt water and then when the water can uh, evaporates from that little repository the little reservoir in the center of the ring it goes up it makes contact with the inside of that plastic dome that plastic kind of peak that's over it it runs down the edges of that to the outside of the rubber ring rather than the inside of the rubber ring whereupon it's collected by a little bottle that's there the obvious problem for that is that if you've got it alongside the life raft and it's in the water the water that's collecting on the inside of the little plastic tent, it can shake back down into the salt water in the center and the salt water in the center can just get shook like over the sides of the donut of the inflatable donut and into the outside trough where the where the fresh water is meant to be. So 
getting a solar still to work <clears throat> reliably is difficult. And I think in Steve Callahan's book, he talks quite a bit about that, the, the issues he had with it. Um, it can produce about 0.75 to one liter per day in calm conditions, calm conditions. However, rough conditions can cause the seawater, okay, here we go, in the bottom of the still to splash into the distilled water, making it undrinkable. Always taste the collected water before drinking. Yeah, you know, if you've got a chance, don't drink seawater. But if you've got a chance where a bit of salt water has got into it, it tastes a bit brackish, I'd say definitely go for that. I'd be, <laughs> be all over that like a rash. A little spoonful of sugar in there, brilliant. Um, next part down is hand-operated desalinator. <laughs> using the reverse osmosis, using reverse osmosis, sorry, using reverse osmosis, a desalinator or water purifier pump will remove 98% of the salt from seawater. It can produce as much as four to five liters of drinking water per hour. Really? But it's a hard physical work to operate. It may, in the heat of the day, cause the operator to sweat out more water than they can make. To make the most of a desalinator, use it at night when the weather is cooler. Well, I got to tell you, <laughs> I have some pertinent information here. I remember getting out the little tiny, uh, is it a little Survitec or something, a Survivor? I can't remember what it is, but it's a tiny little thing that looks like a, I don't know, like a, a thermos, a small thermos, and it's got a big handle on the top of it, and it's got a tube that goes in, a tube that comes out. One tube goes into the seawater, which you hold in like some kind of container or drop the thing over the side. And the other one goes to a bottle that you're trying to fill with water. So you pumpy, 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 pump. And it says here that you can, what did it say? Four to five liters per hour. <laughs> right. So I can remember we had one of these on uh, Spirit of Adventure and we were crossing from the Canaries to St. Lucia. Yeah, in about 2014. And we set off... I was the mate and we set off with the amount of water that everybody else and the captain had decided upon, right? Now, I will say this. Before we uh, departed, I put a, a flat of uh, water bottles under my bunk and didn't tell anybody about it because they knew it was going to run out. So when we got into the most desperate straits of running out of water, what was actually happening was uh, we did have enough water for enough people for two days under my bunk, but I wasn't telling anybody. The point was that we decided to recognize the issue and use it as an opportunity to learn. So we got out, okay, how do we how do we make water? What can we do? Can we make a Liebig condenser and you have the engine creating the heat? And can we uh, use a solar still? And can we use the hand desalinator and all these different things? The hand desalinator was really easy to do because someone was just pumping and pumping. And then, you know, they do 20 minutes and somebody else does 20 minutes and we're a crew of like 16. So we just keep passing it around. By the end of 24 hours, we had enough water to give everybody a cup of tea. Right. They've been doing it for 24 hours and we had enough water to make a cup of tea, a round of tea for 16 people. So, yes, <clears throat> it might be able to make four or five liters or there's a particular model of something that can make four or five liters. But they can also make less than 200 mil per um, per hour and uh, put you put a huge amount of work into them. We came out of that uh, and that was a, a new sealed unit. Well, it wasn't maybe brand new, but it was certainly sealed. It hadn't been used before. It still had a pickling solution in it. Um, and it was it was not something that you want to be relying on unless you're absolutely desperate. And, you know, maybe it's not so warm. So you're not worried about the sweating thing. But um, here we go. Uh, Lone Sailor. OK, Lone Sailor Steve Callahan's seven meter yacht sank after a collision with a whale while on a transatlantic passage from the Canaries. He abandoned ship into his life raft. In his grab bag were eight pints of water and three solar stills. He found that in waves, each sill was a still sorry was jostled by the lanyard connecting it to the life raft, causing the collected water to be contaminated. 
He opened one to see how it worked, and by cobbling two together, he managed to get about three, uh, about half a litre a day from it. 76 days and 1,500 miles later, he was picked up by fishermen within sight of land. And Bill and Simone Butler survived for 66 days in a life raft, poof, nothing, uh, using a a PUR, a Pura Survivor 34 manual reverse osmosis water filter after whales sank their 38-foot yacht Siboni 1,200 miles west of Panama. Right, so they survived for 66 days, two of them operating that thing. I can imagine that, seeing we've said previously that half a litre to a litre would be enough. You know, To do a round of tea at 250 mil per person for 16 people, we needed to have just four litres of water. Four litres of water would have been great for them. It was not great for a crew. And maybe there was something wrong with our unit. I don't know. Maybe they had a better unit. Maybe we had a smaller unit. Who knows? But um, be very cautious about the fact that just because you've got that thing doesn't mean this problem is worked out. And I would say know that your water maker is 100% correctly pickled. It says it came from the manufacturer or whatever, because if anything happens inside that uh, membrane, um, it isn't going to work. It's not going to be okay. You're not going to have the water you expected. Um, the solar stills, yeah, it's... They can work, but as he correctly says, if they get jostled around at the lanyard that's holding them to the raft, tugs on it, it shakes everything off. What you've got to do is just collect the water like very, very regularly is the only way to do it. Forward osmosis water packs. We'll do this and then we'll leave it. I'm only doing these for one hour because it's kind of intense, right? And I really want to um, put this podcast up before we get too late in the day. Uh, American manufacturers make two types of forward osmosis desalinator packs that can be used to create a drink from seawater. One of the packs is reusable while the other has three one-use pouches. The reusable pack can be used eight times and consists of a waterproof plastic bag divided by a permeable hydrophilic membrane. On one side of the bag, a small quantity of glucose, a sports drink syrup, provided as part of the kit, is added. Oh, so they're actually adding like sports drink syrup in. Yeah, that's what I did. I added, um, it's because they know what's going to come out of it is not going to be fully like free of salt. So they're, they're covering it with sugar and it tastes like okay from my experience. On the other side, seawater is added. The higher concentration syrup then draws water through the membrane by osmosis, removing 97% of the salt to create a sugary and salty drink, which is reputedly similar to grape juice. At a temperature of 20 Celsius, the manufacturers claim the pack will create 0.5 litres in five hours, eight hours if the water is five Celsius. <clears throat> OK, so that's I'm not going to get into everything else it says here about exactly how to use those, because I've never used those. That sounds pretty interesting. Has anybody got any experience of forward osmosis water packs? That sounds very, very strong uh, as a you know an initial option to 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 get people uh uh, through a short stint in the life raft. Um, it sounds a lot more reliable than solar still, I've got to say. The hand desalinator sounds great, but not everyone's got them because they're very expensive. They don't come in the life raft um, and they may not be quite as good as they're be we're being told here that they, they can be. So um, something which is just very reliable and does it um, by some chemical process here and gives you grape juice, that sounds uh, pretty religious to me. Let's try it out. Okay, so that's got us through to... Um, page 115 of this uh, fantastic book uh, we've got a little bit to go here uh, looking at fishing and uh, turtles seabirds method of keeping cool um, yeah and a kind of like a, a summing up of things I think there's another podcast in that if I keep adding stories in it's always good I think we've got uh, enough for today we don't want to uh, bore you to death with what might happen in the life raft but you know I say I will keep adding into this it looks like we're going to have done six podcasts six hours of talking about what to do we go in the life raft that will get you not even through the first night in the life raft. So 
They're a little bit dry, perhaps. I try and make them interesting, but um, I think this is a key area to talk about and one that's not spoken about enough. Remember, there's still a lot of people lost per year. Uh, we never see them again. We don't know if they're in the life raft or not. Um, it would be uh, just as awful to die today of dehydration and starvation as it was X amount of time in the past, right? So don't think that that's uh, an issue that's uh, wholly black and white. That is uh, something which we can take steps with modern technology to help ourselves. We can have equipment on board that gives us a better chance, but we need to know how that equipment works. We need to believe in that equipment. And then we've got the underpinnings of a good survival situation. We've got equipment. We know how to use the equipment and we've got belief in ourselves in the equipment. That's a pretty good recipe for getting out of a terrible situation in a life raft. But, uh, that brings us towards the end of today's uh, podcast. Uh, these are going out a lot more regularly, so I'm not too worried if it's just an hour now because we're actually doing a lot more hours per week. I hope that fits into your schedule a little bit better as well. If we have interviews and things in the future, I'm not scared at all to run to two and a half, three hours, but uh, you can imagine it presents a pretty big uh, challenge when you've got to sit and talk about these somewhat sometimes dry subjects for, for hours on end. So an hour is much better for me. And say go over and have a listen to some of those stories on uh, the Mariner's Library and you're going to get access to loads more knowledge because <laughs> I don't pick the books where everything goes right, right? <laughs> People don't write books about where everything goes right. It's always some kind of disasterville situation. So there's one in I just did recently. It's called um, How Rugged Can You Get? <laughs> it's just like... They're in such a bad situation. They're like eating their shoes and eating the the brill cream, and it's like, oh my lord! Um, they would probably love to have uh, got access to some of the equipment we're talking about here today, and some of the techniques we're talking about. Because uh, the reality of it, if you end up out on the briny deeps without um, the right attitude, the right equipment, everything else, is it's a very hostile environment. So take it seriously. But wherever you are, I hope that you are safe and sound as always, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.